वेलकम टू सिंह टॉक द सिंह टॉक इज अराउंड द टेबल टूडे डिस्कस द अनरेगुलेटेड अंडर बेली विल थिंक अबाउट द रेल्स दैट आर नियरली इनविजिबल टू एंड अनकंट्रोलेबल बाय द स्टेट एंड अदर्स डज लॉ ऑलवेज इंटरेक्ट विद नॉर्म्स वाई डू अर्बन विलेजेस इरप्ट इन सिटीज Where is sun preference found and why? When do financial incentives work and not work? Are the determinants of criminality largely social? How delinked is the underbelly from the rest? Does income matter? Where do regulators live? Does state often violate its own laws? What is crime? Who's crime prone? Or the state to be in the business of moral training? What is the long-term future of control and evasion? And what will always remain out of reach? We are pleased and privileged to have three sin talkers with us here today. Dr. S. Anukruti, she is an economist. Her research interests are development economics and economics of gender she is currently at boston college dr sushmita pati will be joining us shortly she is a political scientist with specific interest in urban politics she is currently at the school of development at azim prem ji university in bangalore and professor vijay raghavan he teaches at the center for criminology and justice at the school of uh, social work at this in mumbai his interests are prison reforms and rehabilitation of custodial populations so vijay why don't we set the ball rolling with you um you've thought about this and worked in the area for many years um but for a second if we take a somewhat abstract look at this notion of criminality um you know one ends up associating words like underbelly and uh, you know underworld this the somewhat different world where apparently different rules apply different laws prevail and so on what does it come to mean to you and do you think of that as how dealing to linked is it to this call it the other world that we often refer to and hopefully inhabit okay so well you know crime has existed for as long as uh, you know we have existed as a society and uh, there are various interpretations that are there in terms of you know what crime is all about and who is a criminal etc so if one looks at the oldest understanding of uh, the criminal uh, these were known as the demonological theories you know where the criminal was seen as a incarnation of the evil and it was only with the age of enlightenment that the the understanding about uh, how crime can be controlled and what should be done to deal with the issue of crime came up in a more scientific and a systematic way so the idea of criminal and the idea of uh, control kind of go hand in hand you know? yes right. yes and uh, so you had the classical thinkers of uh, beccaria and bentham who talked about you know that you need to have a society where there is rule of law and and laws have to be written down and uh, the punishment has to be proportional to the crime committed 
and only then uh, people will decide uh, you know you make it a calculation yes yes so so what 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 they essentially their contribution was to make it uh, say was to say that uh, human beings are rational and therefore they are not born criminals or there's nothing evil about them so it, if depending on the kind of laws and policies you have people will accordingly decide that and this then, is this is uh, uh, a neutral view of human beings or it's it's a view so, that so, human beings are essentially good or whatever you know, no so yeah. this this is where i mean we start off from but then since then there has been a lot that has been written and talked about in terms of crime it's still something which no one has really you know been able to fully put it in terms of understanding it so just a few if i would like to uh, sure. you know uh, kind of share with you some of the perspectives uh, which i thought would help us get a better understanding is if you look at for example uh, durkheim a very well known sociologist he talked about crime as uh, crime is normal to society and uh, basically he said that crime is something that tells us the boundaries of society at any given particular point in time whatever so therefore uh, if in fact he said that you can't have a society without crime it essentially tells us what are the outer boundaries of behavior that that society allows and which can change over a period of time uh, from then uh, how understanding has changed is where uh, crime is looked at as uh, you know a domination by the ruling class uh, in terms of what are the kind of laws and norms that that would prevail yeah, there's in always that an particular... interplay with laws yes right? yes that society that will be there to an understanding of what is known as you know today looked at crime as a social construction mm-hmm. just like gender is a social construction crime is a social construction which essentially means that it is time specific it's culture specific and it is region specific so what is a crime in one part of the world may not necessarily be a crime so there's nothing absolute about yes it. and also that there's a constant interplay between social norms and the law and sometimes the law is ahead of the culture and sometimes is the other way around and therefore whenever there is this kind of a mismatch between what the norms are and what the laws is it leads to a certain kind of you know conflict in society uh, but so, is it when you when you when you refer to the word society yeah. uh, time and again yeah. is it now whatever this criminal criminality this underbelly is yeah. is it where is it seen as inhabiting is it somewhat equally spread out is it some nook and cranny how now doesn't visualize this yeah. uh, so yeah so you're right in saying that society it doesn't exist as a homogeneous uh, kind of right. category it is uh, you know a question of uh, which section of society is dominating at a particular given pa- point of time and it's their values and norms that, that become prevail. the default yes, or yes, yes. it's supposed to be the yeah, one that is yeah, adhered yeah. to yeah and when you talk about the underbelly at at some level it is the uh, you know it is the uh, the life world of people who are not part of that dominant uh, class or you know section of uh, society you know so therefore uh, which is why also when you see the underbelly it's also known as the parallel economy hmm. you know why is it called the parallel economy it has a significance to that uh, that term that it exists along with the mainstream economy except for the fact that there's something that, self-sustaining about it yes except for the, and there is an interplay mm. between the parallel and the mainstream economy and there's a you know a lot of give and take that's going on between the the two systems uh, as far as the people are concerned who are part of that underworld they are not you know people who are living only there 
you know so there's some part of their life which is involved in that that world but they also living in in the the rest of society as all of us you know so there's a so you you're also like maybe you know like a a father or a a mother or a husband or a wife or a child and but one part of your life is being spent in a particular economic uh, activity which is uh, so called illegal and that's where the clash starts to happen between what is legal and what is uh, illegal and would you always think of this in economic terms i think we'll go to anukruti yeah, and maybe yeah. pull her out and yeah and discuss there but is how obviously one ends up thinking of it socially yeah. but one can also think of it socially economically yeah. and it's how, all how important is the you know it's 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 all it's all mixed i mean the point is that deviance as a category if you because essentially then you have to start looking at deviance as a category deviance as a category is uh, is created because there is something that is defined as normal right and the question is who defines what is normal and what's that, the what's the answer anu who defines what's normal So, now there could be a law of the land and so i think yeah so economists would think of again you know you have a set of laws and then people who are rational agents will choose to take various actions and so for example something like dowry right so dowry is something which has existed for centuries and at some point we made a law which made it illegal to give uh, or receive dowry right so then it became criminal whereas it's something that was the social norm uh so i think in some sense illegal and uh, criminal are sort of related in some yeah. sense right and, so and have you thought about that a little bit or have you done any work on that on this transition of dowry being kind of commonplace norm so to I, it becoming you know a somewhat shameful act or whatever at least in some quarters these things are not switches right they don't go from right. one to the so, other so so it hasn't i think based on my research it hasn't really become shameful because dowry is still quite widely prevalent mm-hmm. uh, in more than 90% of marriages in india dowry is uh is dowry payments are made uh so so that's sort of a very uh, clear sort of conflict between what is the social norm versus what the law defines as uh uh not okay and, and if you think of it somewhat coldly with uh, with with how it's come to be because it was a norm for all those years mm-hmm. now that's not to justify that whatever was in the yeah. past was correct but what do you think were the circumstances or the factors that led to it being what it was is there an economic lens to where as one analyzes yeah. it So I think economists have thought of like two reasons why for example something like dowry has come about. So long ago in India until 2005 women did not inherit property. Uh so dowry was thought of as a pre-mortem bequest. So parents are uh bequesting a part of their property to their daughters who are going to move out of their family and live with the husband's family. So you sort of give their share before at that point and then the son inherits the rest uh over time now that inheritance rights have become equalized even though it hasn't really uh, taken effect taken effect so this is a case where the law is there but you know yeah, it so hasn't become part of behavior and all exactly so sisters for example still feel obliged to uh write off their share to their brothers so right. that's where the law has come in but the the social norms have not evolved uh so but dowry is another thing that economists also think of it as a marriage market price so we can think of dowry as a price of the groom and it is dependent on what is the supply of grooms what is the demand for grooms and then it <laughs> sort of is in uh in in equilibrium it's a price uh so what people believe is that over time for example the bequest motive of dowry has sort of been overtaken by the uh this marriage market price motive uh and then we can study it as uh just like we would study what determines the price of apples so uh, if you think of dowry as a price for something obviously it's it's a somewhat rigorous statement to make mm-hmm. 
uh, does it stand the test as when yeah when it does actually because then what you can see is if that is the case when the valuation of let's say grooms changes or the demand or supply of various things changes does the price of uh, dowry respond uh due to that right so so people have found for example as uh, education has gone up over time in india most of it has been focused for men uh, so the quality of grooms for example has improved over time and that's considered one reason why so there is dowry inflation in india right. so people do try to uh, look at it uh, very empirically and rigorously and we started off with uh, with with you know uh, thinking about criminality do you do you think of it in those terms at all as you is it like somewhat benign non compliance is so it so i think uh, i uh, yeah so because the type of things that i study so for example sex selective abortion hmm. right so so to certain extent that is a very new phenomenon because we did not have technology uh, that could detect the sex of the fetus you didn't have advanced the, ultrasound and so yeah, on yeah until, until the 80 so it's sort of a new phenomenon that has emerged and then the law has tried to catch up with it uh, so it has now over time it has become illegal to for example use the ultrasound to reveal the sex of the fetus now whether there is something fundamentally criminal about that you go if you go to the us it's very common to reveal the sex of the fetus so it's not the act that is uh that is wrong in any sort of right. uh, you know objective way it's just that it has led to selective abortion of female fetuses and that is something that the government would like to regulate because we believe it might have negative consequences for society uh and so then that becomes a law and then anyone who then breaks that uh law becomes a criminal uh so it's sort of an interplay of what is it that you're doing and what does what is the consequence of that and then we try to regulate those actions and make them uh criminal and how does one think of what this leads to in in the sense that this market or world of cd ultrasound clinics and so on where you know illegal within courts detections are done has it kind of moved underground to the underbelly uniformly around the country or i mean because these things don't work as a field right it's not yeah. like sunlight it doesn't fall and everything uniformly so you uh, know unlike the underworld this is I'm something i'm sure there are more factors at work so yeah, that's what yeah. we're trying to make it more complex than, yeah you know. so i think unlike the underworld this is actually not at all the underbelly you know right. so this is pretty much in the open uh it's just that the implementation of law is very weak uh so the government has been trying to for example impose fines and stronger fines and punishments for people who break this law but it hasn't really worked because there's both demand and supply side factors that want this to happen right so there are yeah, families, it's only the regulator with some it's just the regulator who's sitting as a third party trying to tell both the suppliers and the demanders that you should not want to do this and the specific regulator himself or herself may be getting when they become the supplier or, or, yeah exactly yeah. you know so so it's like regulators are themselves part of this ecosystem so nobody is only a regulator nobody is only a regulator you think of this aspect nobody is only a policeman nobody is yeah. only yeah. A... so you know uh, there's a very well known saying that you know society creates crime and the individuals commit it you know right <laughs> so basically what is one is saying is that there is a, that there there are structures existing in society which which uh, create a, a an opportunity for a certain kind of act to be committed would you uh, say as that long for as, would you say that for things like sex selective abortions yes so and, as long as anything has social sanction hmm. you know it will continue to exist hmm? the question is whether it will exist above the law or under the law hmm? if for example let's take the simple example of uh, gambling hmm? right oh, or uh, illicit liquor okay uh, so you have uh, gambling uh, which is uh, banned in india you can't gamble but it can happen in certain casinos 
Okay. Uh, you can uh, you you can have uh, regulated alcohol, uh, which is like you know English made foreign liquor, but you also have illicit liquor. Now, who who are the consumers of illicit liquor? People who cannot afford. you know what is sold in the you know the wine shops uh, etc so as long as anything there is a demand for something the it, that activity cannot be stopped you know and uh, this so is the where the point then vijay is that changes would only happen via somewhat large scale changes in social norms mm, yeah that that's 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 precisely the point now uh, you know there's this very well known uh, sociologist called chambliss uh, mm-hmm. who's talked about corruption in america uh, and he's uh, tried to he's the one who said this that as long as anything has social sanction it will flourish you know and then the law enforcement agencies are caught in a bind and they will move in the direction of least resistance <laughs> so there will be times when they will come very heavily against the law violators when there is public pressure to uh, act against them and then at other points they will they will uh, there will be a tolerationist approach because the reason why the tolerationist approach is is because there is some kind of toleration for that activity in society and i know have yeah. you seen stuff like this play out in 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 your field work or your study yeah i mean you see that for example to go back to the question of dowry right so how many people are arrested for giving dowry yeah. very small numbers right so if there is a dowry death or if somebody files a case then yes you see some action from the uh, the police system but not otherwise right so it's like you turn a blind eye to something that is just there because there is no we don't have any social sanction against it but we have this legal sanction against it now now you're an economist and you and your fellow economists are not sociologists mm-hmm. so so how do you think of mechanism design policy design how does one do something to is there a way in which law can impact norms uh, so i think what vijay said is i completely agree with it that unless the social norm changes substantially but uh, the the question it, is what changes it right so i think we know we don't know that much about it how do norms change and at what precise moment or what policy can you design which immediately changes the norm so i think that's something that we don't know so what people have tried to do is for example design these financial incentive programs and the assumption is that if people are rational agents who are doing these cost benefit analysis when they are choosing a little to, bit like bentham and bicaria exactly, saying people know. will do calculations yes. yes. so you're not born criminal but you are choosing if i indulge in this criminal activity what is the benefit i get and what is the cost if i get caught for example so you sort of Uh, compare those two, and then if your expected utility is positive, then you choose whichever is the higher paying option. Right? Does it so, work uh, in in the kind of cases that you've thought about? Does it work? Has it worked? So I think that is yeah, it does work. So for example, uh, I studied a financial incentive scheme that tries to encourage people to not abort their daughters and instead uh, uh, keep them. Right. So what they do is this: is the government of Haryana, which gives you a large sum of money if you, for example, have a daughter and. uh become sterilized so what you see is that uh people respond to the incentives when as long as they're able to have a boy uh they do not respond to the incentives when it means that they cannot have a boy uh so but that's a question about the sorry incent- how does that work so so for example this policy it's called devi rupak what it does is if you have a a girl and you don't have any more children you get 500 rupees per month for 20 years but if you have a son they give you a lower amount which is 200 rupees per month 
uh, for a period of 20 years. So if it was simply... So if, the girls are worth net present value of 300 rupees for... Yes, so that for, was sort of... <laughs> I, so uh, it's a good question for policymakers how they came up with those numbers. But, but do you have do you have an inside track on exactly how they went about it? No, uh, there, there is... I think they just came up it, with... It, it is uh, with, kind yeah, of arbitrary. Yeah, it was quite arbitrary. But what I find is that the one son incentive does work in... Uh, in terms of the parents are not, they do not have uh, an additional child or girl because they can have a son. So a son plus this 200 amount is uh, sufficient for them to give up other children. But uh, this one daughter plus the 500 amount is not sufficient to give up a son. So um, in the son first families, this works? Yes, son first families, this works. And in fact, this creates an incentive to have sex selective abortion for first parity because now you really want your first child to be a son so that you have a son plus you get this 500 rupee uh, incentive for 20 years. So in fact, it actually has a counterproductive uh, By impact. like actually the fertility falling. In the exactly. Society, so right? fertility falls, but sex ratio actually becomes much worse. I think you guys have a tough job on your hands. Yeah, so it is. It is hard. Yes, Vijay. The the other thing that needs to, I mean, I wanted to just bring in here is that uh, you know when you talk about incentives, you also also talk about disincentives. Yeah, and uh, just to uh, just to tell you that uh, how well the law or the policymakers might think in a particular way, uh, issues are often rooted uh, in much more uh, structural uh, ways. So, for example, this entire. Uh, uh, thing that's going on about, uh, for example, uh, crimes against women, and uh, the fact that they should be given the most brutal punishments, and you know, for example, sure. what happened in uh, Telangana so, recently, yeah. where those four uh, alleged rapists were shot by the police, and there was so much of celebration around the country about that fact. Uh, the the reality of the fact is that uh, you know, until and unless uh, the basic uh, equations between men and women in our society change, and you know, and there's true gender. Equity that comes about, uh, crimes against women is not going to go down. So just because you have death penalty or the harshest of punishments for certain types of crimes, you you will not necessarily see a corresponding change in terms of the crime rates happening. In fact, there was a very interesting study done by I forget the uh, the the author of the paper. Uh, he had uh, studied the the crime rates in countries uh, across the world in terms of uh, three things whether they had capital punishment uh, in that country, was it a democracy, uh, and there was rule of law. And they found that, surprisingly, countries which have rule of law, uh, democracy, and have abolished capital punishment, the crime rates are lower in those countries. And which essentially shows that respect it's... for law is much more important than harshness of law. I so think, this... you know, one, one could maybe turn around and argue, and I haven't read this work, that... You don't have capital punishment because it's kind of not needed, you know. As in, the society has evolved to a state where, yeah, um, the norms are closer to what everybody would by and large like. I think maybe you have extreme measures when there are extreme. No, what I'm trying groups. to say is yeah, that no, but, when you go yeah. for quick fix solutions. They don't necessarily. Yeah, work. then you're yeah. dealing with the symptoms. Yeah, and exactly. So I think it depends the... on the strength of the norm as well. Yeah. How right. strong is it? So there are many 
public policy situations where small nudges or small fines or small carrots actually or sticks work right but it it's the way we would think of it is that that particular incentive is able to overcome yeah. whatever that you're trying to fix but if the and are the of, incentives uh, are no necessarily only financial i know you're an economist but there's more to life than money yeah so you could um, yeah so how does one to... so social prestige for example social signaling social status can be another non monetary incentive that people can have right so if the norm becomes that people who have daughters are doing the right thing or uh, something about their behavior is really uh, good then if the society for example applauds it or rewards it then people may change their behavior because they're trying to get that non monetary incentive uh so you don't have to have financial incentives uh but financial incentives are easier to design and uh in, in relative to non monetary incentives what the exact size of those incentives or structure of those incentives is is another question which is not so easy uh but they don't have to be uh monetary always they can be non financial and what is the prism like um vijay this mm. is going to a totally different place because that's kind of seen as a place where Mm. at least for people from the outside and yeah. you've been inside yeah. Yeah. a few times as yeah. a non convict yeah. yeah as as a researcher yeah. Yeah. um are there rules inside prisons yeah of course i mean what, so, how how formal or informal is yeah. that space yeah. and yeah because that's it's it's a special kind of place in a way just yeah. to see how some of these forces act yeah so uh, the first thing that uh, strikes you when you go inside a prison in, in the indian context particularly for, especially if you're an outsider is oh how clean it is okay it's, really yeah i mean from the outside you know there are lovely gardens and things of that sort but when you start actually transacting the daily life of prison what you realize is that you have formal set of rules uh, that exist but all of those rules can be negotiated depending on the power uh, and the uh, influence that you have within that system so even in, that world is not flat in any way no absolutely not so it depends on uh, many things for example your education level it depends on your financial status it it's a good idea to have a phd for a good person <laughs> <laughs> i think it helps yeah yeah but essentially what i'm trying to say is that this prison is a world by itself mm. and particularly because of the fact that there is isolation from the outside world it forces the people living within the system to develop uh, a society by themselves where right. you have relationships within with each other you have Uh, people who are your protagonists you who are people who are uh, gunning for you you have uh, s- people within the system who are sympathetic towards you you have people within the system who are uh, ensuring that you know you stay on the line uh, it's a classic is, microcosm yeah everything. absolutely yeah it has to be yeah yeah and what happens to uh, to the regulators i mean what what are at the level of yeah. if i was like the jail warden Correct. or the prison warden yeah, yeah. what am i because it's a very interesting guinea yeah. pig to yeah. see what you're able to regulate and not regulate so what doesn't work so it depends on at first of all at what level uh, of the system you are whether you are a guard a constable or right. you're a, you're an assistant jailer you're a jailer you're a superintendent you are an inspector general of police because the person who is most in contact with the prisoner is the uh, guard or the constable who's spending the maximum amount of time and they're likely and to be most sympathetic to them or not necessarily the they, you know it it again it depends on you know the kind of time and the kind of facilities that are being provided to them by the system in, in typically in the indian situation most of our prisons are understaffed you know there are about 30% vacancies in uh, prisons across the country so they are terribly overworked they are underpaid and as a result of that 
they are they have uh, to build relations within the prison uh, hierarchies particularly the underworld to ensure that they get some kind of uh, you know benefit uh, from that uh, from that uh, architecture of right. uh, that exists in that within that system some link between the parallel economy and yes, the other yes 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 and uh, also the other thing is that uh, you see they also does, get i think this going to you or no does proximity change anything so the people who run or man these uh, illegal sex determination clinics abortion clinics and so on i mean is that you may or may not have thought of it do they end up having lives which are consistent with law or or so i think i have not studied this but yeah. i would imagine that that should make a so at some level i was thinking of this prison guard who is actually the person who's uh, straddling these two different worlds right in yeah. the prisoners are inside the prison yeah. the outsiders are outside yeah. but this person has to understand both the inside yeah. uh, system as well as the outside system and it would be actually quite interesting to figure out how at what point do they uh, it must make them more understanding of what's going on and but how does that mean is there a conflict between what they are expected to do versus what they think maybe is right and these wrong. structures and uh, incentives and so on they're all informal or they end up acquiring a kind of uh, stability which continues irrespective of who's coming in and going out you know what i mean how standard non standard is it how formal informal is it no see i i, I didn't exactly get what you're saying but what from what i understand is that these are uh relationships which develop over a period of time where i think the question is whether the relationships are structural or is it kind of personal it's dependent on the people there not no, it's, I mean, it's a bit of both you know of it course. has to be a bit of both in fact uh, but uh, the thing is that uh, there's a lot of osmosis also that takes place in terms of values and norms you you find for example if you talk to a a, a police officer I mean, do the jailers become like criminals no that's this precisely what i'm trying to say that if you if you talk to a police officer uh, who is into hardcore crime control and you talk to a, a, like a you know an established person from the underworld you'll see that in terms of norms and values they are very very similar <laughs> it's just the question of which side of the fence you are right so so for example so what uh, would they normally policemen who be? are bumping off criminals uh you know in staged encounters you know they are no different from th- the gangsters who are doing a similar thing with their uh, enemies you know so where is it lie the difference the difference in the fact is one is on this side of the law and the other is on the other side of the law so there is a a kind of uh, you you are continuously in within that you know there's something called the prison subculture hmm. so once you're part of the prison subculture you know uh there's a there's a sociologist called clemmer who came up with this term called prisonization mm-hmm. you know people become prisonized you know and there was goffman's famous study of total institutions where right. people who you know remain in institutions for long term care they end up having you know a a, a kind of a, a behavior system which stays with them even after they get out of the institution you know which is also further cemented by the social stigma that they have to uh, undergo yeah So Sushmita, you made your way here finally. So thanks for coming. But um, how does one think of these notions of you know included, excluded, visible, invisible, formal, informal, in the urban spaces? Um, what happens there? You've been you've been listening into us for some time. Uh, what do these questions mean to you? Um, so I would like to pick up from where Vijay left, where he was talking about. Um, uh what becomes then legitimate if police also uses violence 
then and people also use violence then what decides what is legitimate yeah what is authorized what is legitimate and that brings us to the important question of what is state really and what does the state do mm. so according to max weber who is a sociologist he um made this very interesting and astute observation that state is actually the legitimate exerciser of violence right and that brings us to what vijay started opened up his his uh, conversation with uh, saying talking about criminality and control and i would like to abstract it a little further and to bring in the quest the project of the modern nation state the entire project of the modern nation state is built around this question of what is order what is disorder right so the the project of the modern nation state is always about gaining more and more knowledge so crime control vijay is is kind of a desire for order it's Now, always it, been it's, it's, it's always, always been, been so there's yeah. nothing okay in india for example the colonial state begins with knowing who lives where right so these colonial anthropologists would go and uh, into into the mountains study people study kinship groups then they would have extensive mappings and surveys so that's just they first uh, started the census and i'm taking a lot from the work of uh, historians like bernard cohen and 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 uh, nicholas dirks and people like them and uh, so there is extensive knowledge that's created around how is agriculture done right or how what, what is, kind what of is, people uh, to live to what end why so Uh, so that's that's what i was coming to that this kind of a knowledge as to how do objects move how do people move and how should people move all of this brings to the three kinds of um ends that the modern nation state wants one is reform the second is control and the third is taxation reform yes so what is reform reform would mean uh, uh how should people really live so changing people's behavior yeah. the kind so of things preventing that preventing people uh, from for example taking sex selective abortions yeah. so just to add on to what she's saying is it's a classic example of the criminal tribes act of exactly. 1871 which right. the uh, the british administration came up with where uh, the the writings about why the criminal tribes act was brought in you know there are uh, there are two or three kinds of reasons that uh, scholars have given and one of them is of course the fact that uh, nomadic tribes were uh, difficult to pin down yes yeah, and so that's the, and secondly they they which, did not which have which means difficult to tax yes exactly yeah yeah so you you've said so it looks like everybody's in the service of anu right we just <laughs> <laughs> try to make money send tax away and and, and she yeah. gets to do a fiscal math yeah. so which is why movement is extremely crucial how are things moving and how are people moving borders didn't matter until a certain point then borders begin to get almost uh, hardened right. right and then document uh, regime comes around passports visas who's a legal migrant who's an illegal migrant all these questions begin to then um so when you think haunt of the modern state so what i was trying to basically get at is that the no matter what we talk about the modern nation state or law disorder is at the heart of it yeah right everything is around this anxiety this fear of what the disorder is and what the disorder may look like and when you say movement obviously it's movement of people to some extent um so how does that change 
urban spaces, places we live, places we inhabit. Well, then it it how urban spaces are and how they are designed and how they are shaped. All of these begin to then refer to these concerns. So, uh, if you look at early, so the form of the modern city hmm. is very distinct from whichever kinds of spaces we inhabited three hundred right. years ago. So, I would just you, would you make that determinate link between right. the two? So, for example, just, uh, I would take the example of how Paris was designed. So, Paris is today most people like to call it the romantic city and and. think it's really lovely and pretty and uh, all of that but 18th century paris was extremely ugly it was uh, um it was a working class city it was it was probably dirtier than uh, pockets of bombay right it was but it was a city it was it was a city it was right. a full fledged city is a manufacturing city for the longest part london was was similar right, right. so they both had similar trajectories but then what happens around 1830 there is a popular rebellion against uh, the ruler 1848 there is again another revolution 1848 famous revolution against uh, louis bonaparte if i'm not mistaken yeah so then um, all these rebellions collectively uh, um make the 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 king at that time anxious about his own control and what he does is he hires a a a planner called baron hausman and what this person does he comes and bulldozes paris completely so all these boulevards that we know uh, paris for these you know arcades for uh, uh, these these lovely little shops and cafes they were all, all created with a desire for order for order because you want perfectly ordered cities in order to control people because earlier if your lanes are you know circuitous if they are not very clear then uh, uh people know it better than the policemen how much does this resonate with you anu so where, i where to... do you get orderly orderly data so i think uh, yeah. so i was thinking about this right so yes state operates with their desire to let's say control or reform right but i don't think all of it is bad so in economics for example there's this big debate about free markets versus how much role the state has in right. what happens in an economy right and at least development economists for example realize that state is very important especially in places like developing countries where markets are missing right so you don't have formal institutions either they don't exist or if they exist they don't work very well so if the legal system is for example not very reliable uh, then you don't have very strong property rights for example you can't enforce them so then state sort of has an even stronger role when you don't have these sort of formal uh, systems that work very well uh, so in some sense i feel so then we can argue is the are the state's motives sort of what the society agrees with uh, and then you try to maybe come up with and like is it a democratic anyway? system there, there's supposed right. to be some kind of a social contract between the two to begin right. so, with right so, so yeah. in economics we think of there is a social planner right so it's a hypothetical construct but the idea is like what would a social planner do uh, but the social planner is for example trying to aggregate the preferences of all the individuals in the society in a particular way and then you can have political systems like democracy would be one uh, where you try to sort of aggregate the preferences of everyone and try to come up with a solution that uh, that is the best in some sense whatever but you if have. you so to Today, just pushing that forward a little bit. I know if you wanted to aggregate everybody's child preferences, mm-hmm. 
probably there would be some preference yes But so that's it, where the reform a, part comes in right that's where so the reform part that's where so the reform who so decides exactly so so it, so it depends on so exactly like so we don't know who decide right so one big because if you were a classical social planner just channeling the desires of the masses yeah uh, so there's then, a big contradiction here because we also want people to be free to choose what they want but right. at the same time what if what people choose is not what is sort of socially acceptable or the the current world view is saying that that's not right so for example in the us there's this whole debate about uh, abortion and women have a right to choose but what if a woman chooses to have a sex selective abortion is that then wrong right and uh, so so there's a big sort of Uh, uh so indian feminists for example have uh, have this tricky position in terms of uh, sex selective abortions because you want abortion in india abortion is legal for example but sex selective abortion is illegal and so then there is this issue of to what extent do you regulate to do you let people choose what they want so for example one reason why women may want to have sex selective abortions is because their status within the household is very closely tied to whether they produce a son or not right, right? so then it may be in their interest it may, given it is, the circumstances exactly. in the context so anything you see that sometimes women prefer to have a sex selective abortion and their husbands are not very supportive of that because the woman's position is much more closely related to whether she has a son she's going to outlive her husband and she's going to become a widow and maybe de- is dependent on this elderly son whereas if she does so she in some sense bears the consequences of not producing the son so then do we look at that woman's uh uh choice uh, or her welfare or do we consider uh what happens uh, because you're aborting these daughters another complication is because i have a paper which we we see that son preference is not new right now you have these sex selective abortions which is basically shifting postnatal discrimination to prenatal discrimination right. so earlier you have a daughter and you don't take her to the doctor when she is sick and then she is much more likely to die than a son now what you do is you instead do not have give birth to that daughter uh, so the ones that are born are actually the sort of more desirable ones and you see the gender gaps in postnatal outcomes actually become much better right so so what is better do we then uh, should we allow people to have the type of children they want uh, versus uh, uh, do we somehow try to regulate people's uh, fertility which is the classical political science question exactly, right individual yeah. versus yeah, there's also the who decides right who's who has who has the right to choose there's also another thing here that you know here the women that you're talking about are actually responding to the specific gender needs yeah. whereas the transformative gender needs is what Uh, you know, society as a larger uh, structure. What does that mean? What does which means which means that you are actually you want to do you want to create a society where you know women are seen as you know equals. Mm-hmm. They're part is, of that system. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, what we are basically talking about is that uh, when are we going to reach a point where patriarchy uh, mm-hmm. comes down? You know. Yeah. So till that happens, women will take uh, decisions based on their practical gender needs. So if therefore you know a woman would say i prefer to have a son because you know that son will help me to you know gain status in society but until a woman as herself is seen as somebody who is valuable in society this state of affairs will continue yeah. lots of chicken therefore she will continue exactly. to It's also be uh, seen as the uh, the bad person because men don't necessarily have to uh, be seen as bad mm-hmm. because somebody else is uh, playing that role for doing them. the labeling like the for them anyway. versus the daughter-in-law right like the mother-in-law is sort of the person who enforces these restrictive social yes. norms on the daughter-in-law but it's not because mother-in-law are inherently uh, evil or yeah. anything like that they are themselves part of the same system yeah. uh, so 
but then again it's a chicken and egg situation how do we change the social norm where women have to derive their status from what type of children they give birth to uh, why why does it have to be that way are there projects sub projects experiments that have worked uh not uh no not, not at the level of saying that this is change behavior norms so there are people who are trying to change norms about things like should you take your children to the hospital uh, you know things like that uh, but no, should a daughter be educated uh, so so but, what do you do about taking children to hospital so for example uh, you can use social signaling to make that a good thing right so you right. can take your children uh, to get one vaccine but maybe the child is not fully immunized uh, and one reason is not because parents don't care about let's say immunizing their children they think maybe one is enough and they don't need to give them four vaccines so what you can do is make it uh, so this study gives children so a lot of this is information and, asymmetry ignorance yeah so it's uh, a mix so it's, it's yeah so it's not just one thing it's it's a complicated mix of a lot of various things that's going on and would you say sushmita that somewhat generally speaking different kinds of socio economic groups end up behaving and acting differently uh for me the question is slightly different precisely because uh, both vijay and anukrit's work are about social norms and social right. behavior right. when it comes to urban planning it's usually not considered a people uh, subject yeah it's not considered where, to be a question of norm at where all. there has to be some general consensus around some social practice do you see it's that as largely, a mistake yes i do and it's largely seen as an experts thing which is why there is a great deal of similarity between say um uh, someone like baron hausman to say robert moses in new york who planned new york and to for that matter jagmohan who planned delhi in 70s during emergency and all these people if you see there is a deep authoritarian streak in the way they design cities the way they talk about people there is a great deal of it's it's almost eerie that that what so what are the what are the underlying principles to your mind they would talk a lot about disorder they would talk a lot about diseases they would talk a lot about uh, dirty people so there is this kind of a uh, uh, so uh, for example jagmohan loves baron hausman his books start with odes to baron hausman right so this kind of a you see that there is a deep connect across centuries Very few across geographies to... right yeah. so, and so that's what urban planning is always seen as a technical thing it's yeah. seen as an experts thing it's never seen as something that people have a say in right but there has to be a way in which and there is some soul searching in planning discourses now where people are talking about how do we then uh, make planning a people's thing because it's ultimately people who inhabit cities so how do women inhabit cities and how should that inform planning for that matter urban planning for that matter all of these discourses are now coming in how do you make planning a human thing do you think of So so what what uh, I thought of when we yeah. talked about was population control right like right. that was another big thing that the state has sort of tried to do so right. uh when the emergency happened for example at that time there's this uh in the 60s there's this book that uh, was written by I think Paul Ehrlich it was called uh, the population bomb right? right so it's sort of that they were worried about this uh, anarchy that would result because people in poor countries are just producing children at an alarming rate and uh it's like this all the malthusian 
uh, scares would come in and the, the world will just collapse as we know it. And then the way they try to do it is to sort of impose on... So one reason why India, for example, has female sterilization as the biggest uh, contraceptive method is because of this desire to control uh, who has how many children. And it was primarily maybe relatively poor people who end up having greater fertility who were trying to sort of, you know... How uh, interlinked are these things? I think that's the interesting question. Um, for example these sterilization projects, fertility projects, population control projects, do they end up influencing the way... I'd like to yeah, come in here. Yeah. Uh, it's a related thing to what Sushmita was when she was talking. It just kind of struck me. You know, there is this uh, uh, Bombay Prevention of Beggary Act in mm-hmm. Maharashtra, hmm, which basically criminalizes begging. Hmm? Mm-hmm. Now, uh, to implement this law, there is something called the Anti-Beggary Squad. Hmm? Very interesting to note that the Anti-Beggary Squad is attached to the Azad Maidan police station, which is South Bombay. So that's the only uh, uh, squad in the city which has a dedicated anti-beggary squad. And what do they do? They go and patrol the streets in the night and pick up people sleeping on the streets. And then they're picked up, produced in the Kurla court the next morning, which is the beggar's court, and then sent to the beggar's homes. And there's a very interesting article by Chambliss uh, where he analyzes the emergence of the vagrancy law in England and where he says that when the first vagrancy law was brought in, it was to prevent the peasants from the feudal economy to migrate to cities in search of better wages because it was affecting the feudal economy. Right. And the law made it... So people were leaving the farm to come to the city. Yes, and the law said that anybody who lives in the city must have a place of living. Otherwise, they will have to be repatriated back to their feudal So lots. people in cities should have permanent addresses. Yeah. That's yeah. the that's the conception. Everywhere. So actually. where 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 must beggars live? Where do where do the working class live? Beggars should not be seen. They should be in no, inside institutions. Not being seen and yeah. existing are different <laughs> yeah. things. So that's why, like, if you look at planning documents, there is this... Uh, urban planning documents is a huge lacuna about the working classes. So, for example, if you look at uh, Delhi uh, master plans, which I've studied in depth, uh, there are zones for uh, middle class living, there are zones for manufacturing, there are zones for uh, shopping complexes. But there is very little space for where the working class would I live. hope they leave some space for politicians and bureaucrats. Yeah, yeah, I'm that's sure Lutians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lot of space for them. <laughs> right. So, but there is very little space for working class to live around the manufacturing uh, uh, zones where people would actually, uh, would have to live. Is that absent, the, Sushmita, from the maps? or it's? Uh, it's there, but it's not sufficient. So it's considerably the amount of space that is ordained to middle class uh, housing is not the same as what's been ordained to uh, uh, working class housing. In the case of Bombay, for example, uh, chawls were made for working class population, but chawls were so expensive that hardly working class people could afford them. So ultimately, they again became lower middle class housing settlements. So in this way, you can see that state, in fact, and law as much as it's scared of uh, uh, disorder, as much as it's scared of uh, uh, people who who are uh, who don't have addresses, it also creates illegality. It also forces people to stay in slums. Which is it disorder. forces people to stay in squatter settlements, because in the absence of uh, uh, places to live. So let's talk about uh, a continuation of this theme, which is authorization, Sushmita, because the moment you talk of 
Now, the fact of life is that at any point in time in some of the cities that you referred to, there would be these somewhat disorderly squatters or whatever. Um, how does that go from, I mean, they cannot just be evicted or maybe they are, I don't know. How does that work? Well, that's always been a, a tentative uh, kind of a question with, with the state as to what do you do with uh, so many, uh, such massive uh, spaces where mu much of your population actually uh, lives. Uh, around 1,700, uh, close to 1,800 colonies, in fact, in Delhi are unauthorized. What do you do with them? And then begins this project And by of, unauthorized, you mean they, I mean, do, uh, is it real property? Do people actually set home, spend money, they have addresses, they get mails there, there's yeah. water connection. Some, yes. So what is and unauthorized about them? The, the thing that's unauthorized about them is that they were built on uh, government land. Hmm. So these were during, when the, when a lot of South Delhi, of, in fact, a lot of Delhi was being built, uh, government was acquiring lots of land and in between acquiring and in between the states building, there was huge gap. Right. So, Automatically, people and came. Nature of uh, there was vacuum. Somebody yes, turned up. Yes, and yeah. uh, uh, they constructed uh, on their own, and that's happened in every city in in every country, for that matter. Uh, so and, what and happens is that they, they don't have legal uh, sale documents. They don't have legal ownership documents. But they there are different ways, different kinds of documents that work as uh, property documents. But there would for be a, a rent economy there. Yes. So, for example, uh, inst instead of uh, ownership documents, what what works as a sale deed is actually a general power of attorney. So that document is treated equivalent to a sale document. And there's almost a subterranean land market around that. In fact, And which if everybody believes in it, it works, right? It works. If, if everybody believes in something, it works. Yeah, so yeah. It works. Yeah, it works. How would you see this recent attempt? In I, read, I was reading the papers in Orissa, where the in Bhuvaneshwar, the government has, uh, you know, come up with a policy where they have given land titles to people living in the slums, you know, so and that has apparently is, really helped in those places yeah. becoming better places to live. Yeah. So now there is a huge. So in Delhi also recently, hmm. in fact, uh, in last month, yeah, uh, this the central government uh, gave uh, uh, yeah, land titles all, to. Oh, yeah. To a lot of these unauthorized But these are colonies. contradictions, aren't they? Because, you know, while you want there to be order and compliance and so on, if you go around regularizing... But this also that means that uh, now the state cannot ignore them. Mm. So what happens is when you give line titles, the Delhi Municipal Corporation, for that matter, is uh, cash-strapped. It needs to generate sources to uh, get revenue. So then the, so one, the intentions are not benevolent. They are just... Uh, in a way, it's also benevolent. It's, it's The intention of the state is obfuscated to us, right? We can only make guesses about uh, why, why the Maybe there's no such thing as intention doing. of the state. Also, there's no one intention. Right? Who so it's also votes. It's, uh, Delhi is voting very soon. Um, it's also uh, about generating... Uh, 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 taxes now, now that they have been authorized, now they'll have to pay all kinds of... Uh, Do you find the resource lens, a useful lens through which you could look at everything and explain things? Why are there unauthorized colonies? Why do urban villages crop up every now and then? Uh, for me, that's definitely a useful lens. 
uh, it won't be an all-encompassive lens, but it's definitely a very useful lens to look at what's happening, how are, how is revenue being generated, what kind of transactions are happening with the state, within uh, the state, and with the state and the people, within people. All of these are very important cues for me to look into uh, how uh, this entire economy really works. And how do norms enter your world? How do norms enter urban spaces? Because, you know, we've thought of Anu's situations of, you know, sex relative washrooms and preference and so on. And I think there have been governments who try to play with giving incentives and it's worked to some extent, it's not worked to some extent. Um, and that's because they run, laws run into norms. Are there, are there similar instances in... Oh, absolutely. So uh, there is this beautiful essay written by uh, someone called Abdul Malik Simon who writes in the context of South Africa. And he talks about slums there. And he has this beautiful essay called People as Infrastructure. So what do you do when the state does not give you infrastructure? So then people pull in the resources themselves and they make that infrastructure themselves possible. So those kinds of uh, say solidarities or those kinds of community ways so of organizing things. That's a very emergent thing. It, it's it's yes. the opposite of top-down in many ways. Correct. So for example, Jugad economy, right? So how people make sense of things, how people try to uh, figure out a way to do things when there is very little resource to bank on, right? But at the same time, I find it deeply problematic to uh, celebrate Jugad economy because it's something because that the state should. Because I think to Anu's should. point, that's like the state putting its hand up and saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I can't out. do it, so, you know, somebody else. And I think that's deeply yeah. problematic yeah. to say that, yeah. oh, Jugad economy works fine. Yeah, because the alternative be. shouldn't be shouldn't, anarchy, right? People so, shouldn't, also, people shouldn't be forced yeah, to do yeah, these yeah, uh, yeah. innovations to get by. Yeah. Why should they? But do we have examples of cities or towns where the state has got it right, where the urban planning has worked reasonably well or do we always have uh, these conflicts? That would be, I don't know. I, in, in fact, that's an interesting question. I, for that, I think I'll have to study uh, a lot of different uh, mm -hmm. uh, cities and what's Maybe happening Maybe cities are not supposed to be planned to begin with. But, They're uh, supposed to be emergent things, which but that so really So I don't happens. have a good answer okay. to that question. Yeah. No, Vijay, tell me this. Is it, and, and you know, in some of these, especially in the kind of question that Anu has spoken about, You've thought of morals a little bit, you know. I think norms and morals kind of get intertwined, at least in some certain kinds of questions. Now, is it the state's job to do moral training? The state is interested in it, <laughs> without doubt, because the state wants to produce uh, citizens who are part of the so-called industrious labor. And, uh, you know, I mean, if one were to go by what Foucault says, they, they, the state wants to create citizens who will you know, dis disciplined citizens, essentially. And uh, so uh, whether it is through law, it is through uh, promotion of certain kinds of norms, the state has always tried to produce citizens which it can control at the end of the day. Yeah. So that's, that, I mean, the modern nation state as she started off is is all about that. So the so the urban mohallas and these unauthorized colonies and so on, and we, we thought of this in the context of the prison and I'm not equating the two, but just thinking of them as archetypes, how connected are they to the to the planned parts? Very connected. So because they're embedded. much of the labor, your precariat labor, which uh, works in your spas and your malls and your uh, BPOs uh, of the glitzy planned uh, 
quote unquote city which is also there are there are doubts about how 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 legal or authorized they are why do you say that um, because sometimes they have been built on uh, a lot of flautation of 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 laws themselves so the state flouts its own laws uh, it flouts but by max weber's definition that's supposed to be allowed it's just another kind <laughs> of violence yeah. yes no? if you it sound insane but it's kind of okay maybe but if you like look at any uh, small town planned uh, colony right like uh, and people are building houses the labor is in slums and they're not supposed to be there but if they're not there nobody will construct those houses so it's sort of you know you want them there but you don't want them there and then that's the so they are always together it's not that they are you know hidden in any way so the notion of slums is linked to the notion of labor which in turn is linked to notion of whatever some industry or something right because you you need the working class and that's how they turn up to begin with i imagine and then they somehow tend to hang on and and become a somewhat semi permanent fixture of the city so in the case of delhi that's the city i know best um in fact massive planning projects in fact um brought in way many more uh, migrant laborers into the city who needed to be provided uh, places to to live in which they were never provided right so for example asian games or commonwealth games they required massive they were massive infrastructural projects which required labor to come in from bihar now delhi metro now delhi metro right so and they had no places to live in so they figured out ways to live in and they've continued to live in uh, in the city in many ways so it also goes into uh, say uh, commonwealth games for that matter it uh, all these laborers who had come during asian games who had finally settled down around yamuna pushta uh, when commonwealth games happened and another massive infrastructural project started then they needed to be evicted and then they were displaced further so <laughs> that's been the the journey of uh, uh, your urban capital urban infrastructure and the uh, working poor around these uh, Uh, Similarly, in Mumbai, when the Mumbai Urban uh, MUTP um, Urban Transport Project was implemented with World Bank money, and the you know the railway lines were expanded and all of that, the people living along the slums, all of them were evicted and displaced to the far end of the city, which is M East Ward, where TIS is is uh, located. You know, and TIS has done a number of studies of what has been the lives of those people when they were shifted. from their slum localities to these multi-storied vertical uh, and it's really a mixed picture because while many of these people uh, like the fact that they now have a house of their own and especially a toilet inside their uh, uh, houses and they don't have to stand in the public uh, right. queue but it how it has affected their livelihoods how it has affected their social capital they have to now pay a monthly uh you know society uh, charge which earlier was not the case how in a slum you could build one on top of the other as the families kept expanding but now you the whole family has just one one room kitchen and therefore they have to make do within that so it's very interesting to say that in the name of again reform what what kind of uh, the other most uh, oh. atrocious example is how the second round of uh, buildings that has been constructed by bmc again to rehouse uh, you know displacement project people it has been built in mahul which is in the heart of that uh, uh, hpcl refinery area yeah and uh, the people are, after having been shifted there are 
uh, they've all fallen sick of obviously and there's a court case going on in uh, Bombay you, High Court you is... obviously don't shift people to prime land yeah. you shift them to <laughs> non prime yeah, this is cruel yeah. which they work on yeah. which, which they, they make on. inhabitable and, and, and then, then, then the state on, goes and, and the displaces and so them on. and then claims that land how how desirous are people living in slums and so on of change because i th- i think for example there are many things which they get as a part of the social capital things are free and formal and so on and any kind of formalization is probably expensive i think uh, yeah you would know that better so yeah. you know, while the state might have its intentions some of them may be right um there is there is a economic rationale for not undergoing that change yeah 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 would you agree True. yeah of course and also the fact that uh, you know as long as you leave housing to the private sector you know it's always going to play to the market forces yeah. rather than uh, you know actually at least as far as the basic minimum housing is concerned unless you decide to you know stake that as a matter of state policy i think this problems are going to continue but you know that's where i think like the way economists think that's what the state has to really step up because these things are maybe not be in an individual or a household may not be able to do it because it's not in their best interest but if it is good for the collective or for the society the state can bear that cost in the short run and make these changes but if we expect that individuals have to do it that may never happen so what are those domains i know that that you think require building of collective goods collective assets and no, that so are we, better done by the state and which would left entirely to free market forces would not happen no i mean the tragedy of the commons right like anything where you have externalities is precisely where you need regulation or state to come in because if in it, it's always in the interest of let's say an individual uh plant to pollute because they don't bear the cost of it uh, they can just uh, you know throw out their waste into the river and they, it's fine they can drink filtered water but if the cost of that pollution is being borne by society at large uh, and if those individuals cannot really do anything about it the state can then jump in and form laws which will be better for the society so the problem is that the state may not work properly and that's the problem rather which, than that the state has no role to play so which is the limit of regulations question now i think in the things that you've spoken about it's in some ways it has kind of a say on how many kids you have mm-hmm. what gender they should be and so on um where you should live what kind of water you drink other so how do you think of the limits So I think so I think there's like we need so I mean, state, there would never be laws I'm sure there's no So that's where I think the political system comes in like we need to have control over the state as well right like uh, an uncontrolled or unchecked state can then become a dictatorship and then do whatever it pleases so we want something where uh, the citizens can control the state but at the same time the state can also fulfill the roles of what the state is good at which is to sort of do things which are not a, an individual cannot accomplish on their own that's the objective of a state right a state can do things which each of us may not be able to do but we collectively decide okay this is the state and we empower the state to do things so the power for the state has to come from the people it is not something that they have on their own because then it becomes a dictatorship so i think i at think, least that's how it was thought of 400 years ago at least that's ago. what that's we, yeah, we expect yeah that's the ideal and then uh, where does the state fall short of it and what role can then citizens play where in trying to do that where are you on this uh, sushmita I and also on the governance question right so in some of these somewhat illegal unauthorized sorts of places how do they govern themselves so i'll go back to and i agree with anukriti and uh, largely go back to what i was trying to say earlier 
that these massive uh, urban projects, because they also ex- understood to be the state's domain, not necessarily the people's domain, where the people have to be taken on board, they have often assumed a very authoritarian, very uh, massive uh, megalomaniac skills, right? Uh, so, for example, be it uh, collectivization projects in Soviet Russia, for that matter, or say how Chandigarh was built. Uh, be it the way Sidali master plan as they uh, meant to be was. spectacles yeah they were supposed to be these, these uh, massive value. Uh, the... overarching projects right and I think I have a problem with that kind of a scale of, of thinking about a plan of thinking about a city of thinking about its people as, as a signaling device or I mean what is your problem because it misses out on the ways in which people actually live in the place. <laughs> so you're not aggregating individual preferences, you're yeah. imposing your preferences on people. And right? then you expect that if you st- set a law or or set a standard way of, 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 of a city plan, people will fall uh, and uh, figure out and then be disciplined, right, yeah. it, to inhabit the city. So in that sense, cities are also modernizing projects. Cities are also civilizing projects. They're disciplining projects. They're disciplining projects when the light in that way. turns right, you have to stop. It doesn't happen that way. Yeah. It's always, people always undo the state. So the state is also an always an unfinished project mm-hmm. in that sense. Because it's very... also constantly being undone. Have things actually practices. been undone? So unauthorized, you, no matter how how many plans you make, unauthorized colonies will come up and will take up that space. And at some point in time, they'll end up getting authorized. At some point, they'll end up getting <laughs> authorized, yes. There's a very interesting <laughs> intersection between what you're saying and, you know, my own PhD work, which mm-hmm. was on, you think, uh, involved in organized crime. I was right. looking at extortion as a category. And uh, many of my participants with whom I spoke to, some of them were very high up in the upper echelons of the gang hierarchy. And... So they were senior uh, management. Yes, yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, one of them was almost number two in the in the in in one of the gangs, yeah. But the, the, the interesting thing that came up through those interviews was how, uh, you know, Mumbai implemented this slum rehabilitation project, SRA, they, they, an act, a law was passed called the Slum Rehabilitation Act in the 1990s, uh, which was supposedly a win-win situation for everybody. Yeah. So what the government... And we get should, to take your land back, we give yeah. you 225 square feet. Yeah, yeah. And and the builder builds it free of cost for you. Right. And he in turn, uh, you know, puts you in a vertical. Right. And at the same time, he uses the freed up land to and sells it at a market price. Yeah. Now, what the government didn't think would happen is that people didn't want to move. So they thought that, you know, people are getting free houses. So why shouldn't they uh, agree to it? And therefore it created a a, a problem where uh, it the law required that 70% of people living in a slum Have had to, to yes agree for it, yeah. to the redevelopment project. Huh? And in many of the slums, they couldn't get the 70%. So what did they do? This is where the underworld comes in. The builder hired uh, underworld uh, gangs to threaten and coerce the people to sign up for 70 percent so some consent. non-financial yes and in, yeah. yeah and, <laughs> and <laughs> not only that this the, incentive. What, what what I got to understand was that area wise it was decided which politician will have a share with which builder so which builder will get a contract for this particular say Chembur area 
Look, I really think yeah, you know, uh, Sushmita has already told us the <laughs> desire for order <laughs> seems quite orderly. I mean, so long as you share these spoils in a clean manner, it works. You know, but interestingly, the state is also not this uniform, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, standardizing uh, uh, mon- monolith. Exactly. Right. Yeah. The state also has different layers. The state has different kinds of. Uh, uh, it's it doesn't speak in one voice. Mm-hmm. So while you have these policy makers and planners who are thinking in one way about how to order cities, there are lower level officials. So, for example, a corporator, yeah. Yeah. right? Uh, how, say, uh, a local uh, uh, official he in the be, revenue he office. He may be looking forward to a dowry payment or something. Yeah. And he needs, well, state he needs to agents are of things. very complicated yeah. uh, actors, right? They don't always, It's there's no one state. Yeah. Uh, and there's no one agenda, you know. It's everybody has their own selfish interest as well as, what you know and and they work according to that so bribes i mean it it may be in that individual state actor's interest to have a bribe and not enforce the law uh, and then they're not acting as the social planner they're acting as a rational agent who is maximizing their own benefit basically uh, and the whole state society binary that seems to be existing it actually seems very fuzzy here like you don't know which one uh, it's a very gray area here yeah at this bit. So what's the future? Where is where is all of this headed, Vijay? You've seen this for a very long time, maybe in the context of crime, under trial, prisons. Uh, if you fast forward this uh, quite some distance away, long after we're gone, two, three, four hundred years, oh uh, who knows now, where, 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 where is this headed? Because it's, it's, it's kind of a race, right? And there is, uh, things can only be standardized that much. Things can only be regulated that much. Um, See, the one thing I can say is that with rising inequalities in society, conflicts are going to increase. And therefore, crime is also going to increase. Yeah. Uh, and but, then, uh, but then it only triggers that uh, escalating war as yeah, opposed to yeah. it moving towards a so equilibrium. Uh, until and unless we, uh, you know, consciously as a state and as a society uh, start looking at what 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 are we creating and therefore what kind of uh, you know systems we need to create what kind of safety nets we need to create what kind of uh, security systems not uh, i'm talking about different social protection actually systems right. that we create we are uh, moving in a direction as of now which looks pretty uh, dark to me so, so yeah. the future of underworld is bright. Like if I was, yeah, and the I, future of was, the future of criminology is very bright. If I was aspiring for a career in <laughs> yeah, the underworld, yeah, yeah, yeah. you would you would yeah. show me a thumbs yeah. up. The other thing that also came out again from my own PhD was, uh, you know, how the, the underworld is moving from an actor orientation to a network orientation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think yeah, Bruno yeah, Latour will yeah, be very yeah, happy to hear that. Yeah. Yes, Anu, where where is all of this headed? So I think social norms, at least from the research that I have done, are uh, I think they're very sticky. They don't just change overnight. Uh, do they change generationally? Do people die a bit? 15, I mean, some of it years? that happens, right? I mean, we don't we don't have sati pratha. We don't uh, widows can remarry. You know, so so clearly some norms we have seen change. But then it's a tough question. But are you able to say what happens to what? And so I think it's a complicated mix of many things, right? I think state does have a big role to play in but many. But what of is your theory for norm change? I mean, I'm sure there isn't, but 
So I think, I mean, I don't know, maybe there's a tipping point. Maybe at some point, maybe this generation dies and then, you know, like the number of people who support something is just much, uh, is, is a minority and then things change. So I think it's hard to predict. I think even if we fix a lot of problems that we see today, uh, my guess is new problems will arise, right? So I think this is going to be a constant battle because social norms will always be sometimes in conflict with the law. And uh, what we think is legal today may not be legal tomorrow. And none and of the two are static anyway. They're not static, right? We yeah. are not static. The society is not static. Norms are not static. So, I mean, norms are, if anything, more static than at least the legal system, for example, right? So I think it's going to be just this constant evolution in some sense. Uh, and we'll come up with new challenges. But I'm optimistic that I think over time things can change, uh, both through state as well through society. I think uh, they interact with each other and in some cases we make positive change and in some cases things take a long time. But uh, yeah, so it's bleak but I think hopefully uh, there's a silver lining at least in some cases. Yes, over to you Sushmita. What's happening? You can do this in any context you like. Yeah, so well let me confess I'm a cynic to <laughs> begin with. Uh, but um, so I think planning as such is getting more and more removed from uh, the people's sphere because there is big money playing in right now. So there is infrastructures are not simply state money now. That's it. There are there is foreign money that's investing in 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 uh, yeah, there, there infrastructure many projects. At work. Yeah. Correct. So then there is a lot more focus on big massive infrastructure projects, which we frankly do not need. We but you know, if there was if there was private money, Sushmita, then you know it would it would not do things which are illogical, right? You you would want it to make money, and you would want it to be sustainable and profitable. No, sure, but at the money. same time, you see that there is a way in which there is money being put in, say, metro projects across the cities, right, in India, which is I don't see why Indore needs a metro, right? What we need is actually um um. Maybe buses. Buses. Yeah. We need more buses in this in yeah. in all cities. Yes. Right. And what metro stations do is they increase land value. Yeah. And I think that is where uh, why urban infrastructure is a big money spinner. Yeah. It increases land value. It's definitely non-organic. A bus stop, yeah, a bus stop won't increase your land value. So it increasingly <laughs> pushes uh, uh, poor people into further corners yeah. because uh, it. Those places will get gentrified. But that's the whole point, isn't it? I mean, the cities are not meant for poor people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the policy is we're, beca we're becoming uh, more and more anti-poor, I'm guessing, with, with this kind of a move. Um, also, in terms of the state, it's also, if you look at the past few policies, they've all been massive projects, be it the uh, UID project or be it... Uh, no, but the, if you look at it somewhat abstractly, I mean, of course, you know, Three, four, five hundred years, right? So, three, four, five hundred years. Yeah, I know. I say this very nonchalantly, but <laughs> not that straightforward. Well, that's. Uh, uh, I think there is hope for so me. So, if if, uh, if planning is getting more and more removed, does some other notion, some other some other mechanism take its place? I think uh, for me, the hope lies in social movements. Yeah. I think there is a way in which people will figure a way out and people will come together and speak up against uh, the ways in which inequality hey, is this thing that you're doing doesn't ingrained. do anything to me or it's only hurting me and I, I need this. So more bottoms up stuff. Yeah. And are there, uh, you started out by saying you're a cynic or at least 
is that a glimmer of hope yes that's where i think social movements is where uh, and the possibility of uh, more kinds of so- local solidarity is coming up is where i see hope i mean that's how change has taken place over But centuries also, right historically I mean, if you see challenging from the below is only a, a, like a 3 400 year old process yeah. because it's always been that you know people from the top will rule and people below will right. will will be subjects but it's only in the last 3 400 years that this process has begun to be challenged so from that point of view if you see next 3 400 years i would say that things might move in a positive direction it may just turn upside down yeah it might in which case you know somebody else will because be whether you look at caste <laughs> or gender or class i mean there are many revolutions taking place in the country yeah that's a good note to end this on thanks to all of you for making it and we look forward to having you soon again thank, thank you. you thank, thank you. you for coming